Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and welcome to Chris here on Talk Show. Praise Yahweh. Tonight is um, Friday, February 3rd, 2012. There was a, um, I did a program with Carolyn Yeager Monday, and, and there was a certain turkey who, who cur- criticized me after my program in, in an email this past week. He actually went out of his way to look up my email address off my williamfink.net site, evidently, because that's the only place people could readily get my Gmail account. He didn't even go to my website, to, to my real, to, to, to my Chris Degenia website, right? where it would be actually easier to contact me. Well, well. anyway, this would-be Pharisee pointed out that at the beginning of my programs here on TalkShoe, I, I began with the exclamation, praise Yahweh, and I mean it, in my introduction, and, and I do. His problem was that on Monday night when Carolyn introduced me, I said, praise Christ, and I did, and I mean it. Actually, to me personally, there's no difference whatsoever in the two terms. Yahshua Christ is Yahweh manifest in the flesh. However, and, and I've done this before, and I've done this on, on um, Dina Spingoler, I believe, and, and um, that other clown from Oracle Broadcasting when I was on his show. I think I did it there. And, and, and this clown scrutinizing my every word must have missed a few programs, right? Well, when I'm speaking to a Christian audience, and here we have, um, except for one, one or two trolls, we have a Christian audience, a Christian identity audience for the most part. And, and I want Christians that happen in here to know, if, if they're not identity, that Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, is my God. So I introduce my programs and, and usually end them with, with that offer of praise to Yahweh our God, our Creator. The term by itself, the term God is ambiguous. It can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I don't want the Muslims, I don't want the Jews to think that I am praising their gods. And you won't see the name Yahweh past the lips of a Jew. I hate their idols, and I want to see them destroyed. I also do not want the church people, the Christian, so-called Christian church people, to think that I am praising their God, because their God is a creation of the Jews. He's not the God of the Bible. He's not even a Christian God, since Christ hates the Jews. Christ also hates the Muslims. However, in a mixed or a possibly non-Christian audience, such as much of Carolyn's audience, I mean, they may be Christians, but I don't expect them to be Christians. I expect that that a lot of them are probably white nationalists, a lot of them are probably national socialists, and and that's fine. Racial consciousness, that's that's first. That's what we need first, right? And, And the rest will follow, believe me. I don't expect them to understand what Yahweh means and what Yahweh means to me as a name and as a word. To a possibly non-Christian audience, and I I use 
that term philosophically since I never want to address a non-white audience, right? That, that's not part of my plan. I desire to let them know immediately and unequivocally that I am a Christian. And I want them to think, I want them to think, how is he a Christian? He's not one of those polite and pusillanimous little church mice, which is what they expect Christians to be. Most of them have never met a real Christian. They don't really know what Christianity is supposed to be. As Paul said, he spoke to people on their own terms so that people could understand him. I'm not vacillating. I'm not changing my message for different groups of people, as some people who do who want to keep everybody happy. Rather, I have the same message for everybody I speak to, but sometimes I feel that I have to adapt the presentation of that message to a different audience so that they can understand my intent. And that's why when I'm on a program where I expect a, a non-Christian or a mixed audience, I, I um, begin my speaking with, with praise for Christ so that they know unequivocally that I am a Christian for the sake of the audience, not because of the host. That, that's my assertion. And just because a bunch of clowns and fools and, and, and um, the Jews and, and all of our enemies have taken the word Christ and, and the word Christian and twisted it for their own purposes, that doesn't mean I'm going to cede the word to them. I'm not going to cede my society to my enemies because my enemies long, want to pervert my society. I'm not going to cede my language to my enemies because they perverted my language. It's just not going to happen. So with that said, last week, and you should, well, well if anybody hadn't heard the program I did with Catalan on Monday, I mean, a few people had some good feedback, so, so it might be worth listening to. And carolynyeager.net, she has it on her front page or her website as well as mine, and, and it's, of course, posted at VOR, the Voice of Reason, where, where we did it, right? Last week, discussing um, Hosea, chapters 1 and 2, I think that the primary lesson was summed up in the idea that the children of Israel are a nation of whores, and a whore is a nation. Because they sought intercourse in commerce, and yes, I use that word allegorically, they sought intercourse in commerce with all of the other nations, which they had been commanded to, retain, to remain separate from. This is seen near the beginning of Hosea chapter 2, where it says, and, and these are the words of God, God speaking, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife. Yahweh is putting his wife Israel away, right? Neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and set her as the day that she was born, and make her as a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. And I will not have mercy upon her children, for they be the children of whoredoms. 
For their mother has played the harlot. She that conceived them has done shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, mine oil and my drink. Today, our people, the descendants of the children of Israel, I'm talking about the, the, the Saxon and Celtic people and, 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 and their European kindred, chasing after the produce of China and Mexico and every other race on the earth, we are whores once again. That is why, speaking of the then-future Mystery Babylon, which is here with us today, the Revelation again depicts the nation of Israel as the whore. It's Israel, which is the woman, the whore, sitting upon the beast, who has made herself one with the beast. That's our people. And if you don't believe that they're made one with the beast, just go look on any main street in any city and you'll see it pass by again and again. That is where we are now. Awaiting Babylon's fall. For her intercourse with other nations, the nation of Israel was punished and carried away by the Assyrians and the later Babylonians. And it's all about produce. It's all about trade. My bread and my water, my wool and my flax. We should have picked our own cotton. We should have picked our own tomatoes. Israel's demise, the demise of ancient Israel, was, was and, and deportations and, and, and bondage in Assyria and Babylon. That was a punishment from Yahweh our God for that very thing. And this message continues throughout Hosea. The problems with the old kingdom, we've repeated. We've repeated them today. It's the same trouble that we go through right now. We don't learn from history, so we keep repeating history. Because we don't know history. And that is our own sloth. Hosea chapter 3, verse 1. Then said Yahweh unto me, Go yet, love a woman beloved of her friend. This is difficult language in the King James. Yet an adulteress according to the love of Yahweh toward the children of Israel who look to other gods and love flagons of wine. This chapter's opening phrase may read, go again, instead of go yet. This is the second time that Hosea has been told to take a whore for a wife in order to illustrate the relationship between Yahweh our God and the children of Israel. Rather than flagons of wine, the older Septuagint Greek and the Dead Sea Scrolls versions of this passage have raisin cakes, or as it's sometimes translated, cakes of dried grapes, at the end of this verse. I'll get back to that in a minute. The Greek is a lot clearer than the King James Version here, which is from the Masoretic Text. And I'll offer Hosea 3.1 from the Septuagint 
And there it says, And the Lord said to me, Go yet, and love a woman that loves evil things, and adulterous, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. And they have respect to strange gods and love cakes of dried grapes. The translation of this verse found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible by Abeg, Flint, and Ulrich, has the Hebrew thus. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who has a lover and is an adulteress. That makes a lot more sense. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn unto other gods and love raisin cakes. Cakes of dried grapes, raisin cakes. That might seem odd, but really is it? If one thinks about it, you know, I've experienced this many times in, in, in my own life. It precisely reflects the mentality behind many of the arguments found in favor of Jewish-inspired multiculturalism today. And, and we did have Jewish, at that time Canaanite-inspired multiculturalism in the time of Hosea. Yet, you know, I would talk in front of people concerning the flood of Asians into New York, and they would say to me, don't you like the food? <laughs> Even if I did, I would much rather prefer to cook it myself. Here we once again see that there is nothing new under the sun. Hosea 3.2 So I bought her to me for 15 pieces of silver, and for a homer of barley, and a half homer of barley. Whores were cheap in those days. And I said unto her, Thou shalt abide for me many days. Thou shalt not play the harlot. Thou shalt not be for another man. So will I also be for thee. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king and without a prince and without a sacrifice and without an image, and without an ephod, and without kerosene. As the whore would be without her lover, which is what make, without her lovers, which is what makes her a whore, then Israel would be without those symbols and institutions, which are the substance of nationhood. And if the lovers are what made the woman a whore, then it is the offices of the kingdom that are the vehicle by which Israel, the nation, was also made a whore. And we see that. We see that. We have no control as individuals over immigration policy. We have no control as individuals over our trade policy. But we don't march on Washington with pitchforks and skies, and that should probably be what we we should have, what our great grandfathers should have done when they passed the Federal Reserve Act, which got us into this mess. It's the people sitting in the offices of the kingdom who, contrary to our will. Are, are the controllers, or, or actually they're controlled too, but, but they are the bureaucrats behind the immigration and trade policies and the things which make us whores in the eyes of God. But that doesn't, that, that doesn't force us to buy sneakers made in China. 
that doesn't force us to line up. And, and it's the, the, the horse is way out of the barn now. I remember when I was a child in the late 60s, my father would curse at things made in Korea and things made in Japan. He would curse. He knew what it meant. And, and, and because of that, because of his awareness, I was aware of that at a young age. And I saw people growing up that, that would prefer to buy the $5 pair of tennis shoes rather than the $8 pair of tennis shoes and save $3, but the tennis shoes that they paid $5 for are made in China. Or, or at that time, it was Korea or Japan for the most part. It wasn't China yet. They saved $3, but they slit their brother's throat because the tennis shoe factory that their brother worked for that moved to China, too, because that was the only way they could compete with the first tennis shoe factory to move there. Teraphim. Teraphim is, is often translated images in the scripture. They were idols. They, they were used as household shrines or in worship, but they were more than that. The teraphim were the household gods found among the ancient Syrians, and that's in the Bible. And, also, and we'll get to that. And, and also among the Romans and other branches of our race. That This is something that was um, common amongst early Indo-European peoples. The Indo-European peoples being, of course, the descendants of Noah. All of the descendants of Noah. In Rome, they were called lairs and penates. And the idols came to be seen as guardians of the household. Genesis chapter 31 gives us insight into the importance of the teraphim. Here in Genesis 31:19, where the King James Version translates the, word, the Hebrew word teraphim as images, it says, And Laban went to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the images, the teraphim, that were her father's. Some years ago, Clifton Emmerheiser illustrated what was going on here in his early Watchman's teaching letters. The teraphim were important to Rachel because they were symbols of the family inheritance. The child who possessed them evidently had a right to claim the family estate. Departing from the household of her father, Rachel snatched them up for herself. Laban, her father, noticed they were missing in a short time. To Laban, it was important that his own sons, and not the sons of his daughters, should have the inheritance. For this reason, he had to have the teraphim. Therefore, after he caught up with Jacob and Rachel, as Jacob and his wives and children had been departed from Laban's house, and he searched Rachel's tent for them and could not find them, he was quite exasperated. When Jacob became disturbed at Laban's continued insistence, Jacob, of course, not knowing what had actually transpired, Laban begged that Jacob take an oath. Therefore, at Genesis 31, verses 51 through, through 53, we read, And Laban said to Jacob, Behold this heap, and behold this pillar, which I have cast betwixt me and thee. This heap be witness. And this pillar be witness that I will not pass 
over this heap to thee, and that thou shalt not pass over this heap and pillar unto me for harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, Abraham's father, the God of their father judge betwixt us, or Abraham's brother, Abraham's grandfather and brother, I think. And, and, and he was probably referring to Abraham's brother because Laban was descended from Nahor. And Jacob swore by the fear of his father, Isaac. Here it is evident that if Jacob indeed possessed the teraphim, he was bound by the oath not to cross the pillar to take the inheritance away from the Laban's sons. So we see that the teraphim were household symbols of inheritance as well as being household gods. That the archaeologists, mainstream archaeologists usually always interpret these things as, as idols and gods and, and don't often understand that they have a greater signification. The ephod. The ephod is a priestly garment, a shoulder cape, a mantle, an outer garment, worn by an ordinary priest. There was a fancy one worn by a high priest to mark him off as being the high priest. The ephod, the ephod was the garment of the priesthood. It was not only associated with the Levitical priesthood, as, as is evident throughout the Old Testament, where it's even called an ephod in the translations, but also with pagan priesthoods, as it is evident in Judges chapter 17 and 18, where pagan priests wore ephods and used teraphim images for other purposes. Mentioned here with the kings, princes, and teraphim, it is only representative of the religious aspect of nationhood. Discussing Hosea chapter 1, it became evident that while Israel is a people, would always be preserved on the earth. Israel, the nation, as a kingdom, was for this time to be broken. Hosea 1.4, And Yahweh said unto him, Call his name Jezreel, for yet a little while, and I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu, and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. The people weren't going to cease, but their kingdom was. Isaiah said it, Isaiah 7, 8, within threescore and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it not be a people, a, a contiguous, unified nation with one government, right? The kings, the princes, the ephod, which is a symbol of the priesthood, and the teraphim, which are idol images, but were also used as symbols of familial inheritance, all of these things were symbols of Israel's nationhood. And the prophets had warned that the kingdom was going to be broken. Furthermore, verse 5 reinforces the idea that these had to do with the dissolution of the kingdom, and we will see that momentarily. Because the rulers and leaders of the people had caused the nation to sin, the people would be without the trappings and status of the kingdom as part of their punishment. The children of Israel were for a long time in the dispersion without any of these things. While, of course, they had many men who fulfilled particular roles, chieftains that served as kings over tribes and portions of tribes, 
priests who, who interpreted omens and, and did auguries and, and, and all kinds of pagan things like that. The children of Israel did not have the organized institutions with which these things represent. After the great migrations from Mesopotamia into Asia and eventually into Europe, it took them quite some time to again develop into a recognizably civil society. And, and that could be easily told from the pages of Strabo and Diodor Siculus. What, where, 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 where the Greek writers wrote about the destitution of these Germanic people and how they didn't even have a city and, and, and were, were a pastoral people that just wandered like nomads. They did that for many centuries. And we discussed that last week. It was also part of the prophecy of Hosea. I will make you live in tents as you did in the land of Egypt. Hosea 3, verse 5. Afterward, the children of Israel return and seek Yahweh their God and David their king and shall fear Yahweh and his goodness in the later days. But what were the children of Israel to return to? There are many examples in Scripture and I'll offer only one. Though Jeremiah the prophet, through Jeremiah the prophet, Yahweh said of the old city of Jerusalem that even so will I break this people in the city as one breaks a potter's vessel that cannot be made whole again. Jeremiah 19.11. There are many other prophecies which foretell of the destruction to come upon the ancient land of Judah and Israel and its desolation. At 2 Samuel 7.10, a scripture which is repeated in 1 Chronicles, Yahweh said, Moreover will I appoint the place for my people Israel. Now when he said that, well, the prophet who recorded those words was standing in the ancient land of Israel. So that can't mean the place that he, ta he is talking about. That they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. Therefore, returning to Palestine is out of the question. It must mean something else. Isaiah chapter 55 explains the return of Israel the nation, the children of Israel, to Yahweh their God. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 8. Everyone that thirsts, come you to the waters. And he that has no money, come, buy and eat. Yeah, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread? and your labor for that which satisfies not. Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight in fatness. Christ referred to these words often. He repeated these ideas often in reference to himself being the bread of life, being the fountain of living waters. It's a 
hearkening right to Isaiah chapter 55, 1 to 8. That's John chapters 4 and John chapter 6. Isaiah 55, 3. Incline your ear and come unto me. Here and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Even the sure mercies of David. As Hosea also says here. Afterwards shall the children of Israel return and seek Yahweh their God and David their king. Verse 4. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and commander to the people. Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not. And nations that knew not thee shall run unto thee because of Yahweh thy God and for the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified thee. Seek ye Yahweh while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto Yahweh, return to God. And he will have mercy upon him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. This is all speaking about the children of Israel and their reconciliation to God, which Paul announces and the other apostles announce after the passion of Christ. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith Yahweh. Now in verses 4 and 5 of Isaiah 55, where we read about nations, the key to understanding that is the key to understanding Isaiah 66, 19, and the fact that the children of Israel were distributed among the Japhethite nations of Europe. And it lists them all. Isaiah 66, 19 lists them all. And tells us exactly where the dispersed children of Israel are going to go. Just a couple of hundred years after Isaiah wrote, the Germanic people showed up in all those places. Imagine that. So Isaiah must have been talking about the people that were the Germanic people. Because that's where the children of Israel of the Assyrian deportations ended up. The children of Israel were not to return to some 9,000 square patch of sand in the desert. The children of Israel were re- to return to Yahweh, their God, through David, their king. Christ is the prophetic David. Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-four states, And David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. Of course, this is 300 years after David passed, right? maybe almost 400 years. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Yahweh is the God of the whole earth, as we see it proclaimed in Zechariah 4.10 and in Micah 4.13. The idea of limiting the domain or the efficacy of a God to a certain land is an ancient pagan idea which has no place in Christianity. It is much more important that the children of Israel return to their God rather than to some patch of sand in the desert. Isaiah 55 clarifies that return for us. 
That's the end of a very short Hosea chapter 3. Hosea chapter 4, verse 1. Hear the word of Yahweh, ye children of Israel. For Yahweh has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. The situation which we have today is an ancient one. Right from the beginning, right from the time of the division of the original kingdom of David and Solomon, was religion manipulated for political purposes. The national consciousness is manipulated when truth becomes whatever is politically expedient, and therefore it is really not truth at all. That's when it becomes politically correct propaganda. This is why the Apostle James warned us to despise the rich men of the world who only sought to use their wealth so that they could rule over us and enslave us even further. One means of captivating us today is to use their wealth in order to purchase our academic and religious institutions, which they've done. They did it 120 years ago in this country and corrupts them so that they now teach what is politically expedient for the wealthy rather than what is true and beneficial for the people. Jeroboam was the first king of the house of Israel after the ten tribes had broken away from the rule of the house of Judah. The first thing he did was to change religious truth for reason of political expedience, as described in 1 Kings chapter 12. And I'll read from verse 26. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If this people go up to do sacrifice, in the house of Yahweh at Jerusalem, Jeroboam being the first king of the split off Israel, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam the king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam the king of Judah. Whereupon the king, meaning Jeroboam, took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, meaning to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Now that's a story, that's a half-truth. The people would have remembered the story about the golden calf in the Exodus, right? And he set the one in Bethel and put the other in Dan, the city Dan in the north. And this thing became a sin. For the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. And he made a house of high places and made priests of the lowest of the people. The scum of society were willing to be the priests. They could, elevate, they could be elevated in this falsehood. They could be elevated if they went along. Which were not of the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month on the 15th day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah, 
and he offered upon the altar. So did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised in his own heart, and ordained a feast under the children of Israel, and he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. Jeroboam perverted the whole nation so that he could maintain political control. Here in America, in 1913, with the Federal Reserve Act and related legislation, we handed over control of the economy of our nation to the international bankers, nearly all of whom happened to be Jews. Today, a hundred years later, a hundred years later, all so-called Christian churches are really peddling the, the political desires of their Jewish masters and packaging them as truths in support of the false gods of Judaism. It was quite obvious and direct in Jeroboam's time. Today, it is much more sophisticated and subtle. The Jews, who gained control of our, our economy, they had to gain control over our religion in order to maintain control of our economy. Rather than change the Christian religion overtly, like Jeroboam did, they have infiltrated it through vehicles such as the Bullinger and the Schofield Bibles, the Moody Bible Institute, and they've created a legion of Bible school graduates who have learned from them. At one time, Christians knew that the Jews were the children of the devil. Clifton Emmerheiser just published a paper, a, a short paper, just a, a little plaque from the 13th century with a caption that proves that educated Englishmen in the 13th century, 1277 A.D., understood that the Jews were the children of the devil. Thirteen years later, they were expelled from Britain. What happened? What happened today? How come we don't know that today? Thirteenth century Englishmen were two seed line. Imagine that. Hosea 4.2. By swearing and lying, and killing and stealing, and committing adultery, they break out, and blood touches blood. That's the King James reading. These are the sins of the land, which resulted from a departure from the original commandments of Yahweh our God, and to turn to immoral paganism. The change of religion results in a change in the moral codices of the nation and then a change in the behavior of the people themselves. The Masoretic text here at the end of the verse has the phrase, and blood touches blood, as it's translated in the King James. And in the Hebrew, the word blood appears here in the plural. Bloods touch bloods. Many times in the Hebrew, the word for blood appears in the plural, 
And when it does, it is an idiomatic use of the word representing the idea of bloodshed. An examination will prove that out very quickly. The context, wherever the word for blood appears in the plural in the Old Testament, is quite clear in that regard that it refers to bloodshed, except here in this one verse. In this verse, it is clear from the context that the phrase, and blood touches blood, is related not to the sin of murder mentioned earlier in the passage, but rather to the sin of adultery which it follows, which it refers to. The Septuagint agrees with this assessment, and the Septuagint translates the passage a little more clearly, where Brenton, Sir Francis Brenton, somewhat accurately renders the Greek, and I've read the Greek, of course, cursing and lying and murder and theft, and adultery abound in the land, and they mingle blood with blood. The mingling of blood with blood is not bloodshed here, as the modern translators insist, and I've checked several modern translations. At least it's not bloodshed here in a traditional sense. You could bet that race mixing surely is bloodshed in a different sense. Rather, the mingling of blood with blood here is a reference to adultery. The mingling of blood with blood is the result of race mixing. And that, too, is tantamount to bloodshed because it destroys a race. Race mixing is what happens when the children of Israel forsake the commandment of their God to be a separate people and go following after the strange gods and the intercourse in trade and culture with the other nations and races. In the case of ancient Israel, it was mostly the Canaanites which were the focus of concern. Today, it is expanded to include all of the world's non-white races as well. It's exactly what's going on around us now. We've departed from the ways of our God. We commit murder and whoredom and mingle blood with blood. Hosea 5.3. <clears throat> I'm sorry, Hosea 4.3. Therefore shall the land mourn, and everyone that dwells therein shall languish, with the beasts of, of the field and with the fowls of heaven. Yeah, the fishes of the sea also shall be taken away. Yet no man strive, let no man strive, nor reprove another. For thy people are as they that strive with the priest. Therefore shalt thou fall in the day, and the prophet also shall fall with thee in the night. And I will destroy my, thy, I, I'm sorry, I will destroy thy mother. The phrase, I will destroy my, thy mother, is again another way of saying that the kingdom will be broken. The people will not be, but the kingdom, the nation, the nationhood will be broken. Each of us as individuals sin at diverse times. However, when we as a nation generally depart from the commandments of God, we suffer depressions, we suffer famines and plagues and various other trials. That's what this is saying. We become overrun with aliens, and they steal our wealth. All of these things are among the ancient curses of disobedience described 
in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus. I think it's Deuteronomy chapter 28 or chapter 32. It is not an evil God who persecutes us from the clouds of heaven. Rather, it is the inevitable result of our departure from his ways. It is plainly cause and effect. Our immoral behavior naturally leads to our suffering these terrible things. The only way we can seek to be healed as a people is to return to morality and to the commandments of our God. And things should improve themselves naturally. Just as things have become what they are today as the natural result of our national sin, we can have peace and prosperity only as a natural result of our goodness and our turn to obedience to our God. Verse 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. And thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God. I will also forget thy children. As they were increased, so they sinned against me. Therefore I will change their glory into shame. They eat up the sin of my people, and they set their heart on their iniquity. And there shall be like people, like priests, and I will punish them for their ways and reward them their doings. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. They did not pursue the truth. They had the ability to do so, and they followed their political leaders and priests instead. So for their punishment, they lost their kingdom. And their descendants were put away from the polity of God. Now they have reconciliation in Christ, and so do we. However, once again today, we as a people have neglected to pursue the truth. Rather than read their Bibles, our people worship the Jews. Because that is what is politically expedient in order that the Jews maintain world hegemony, which they have acquired through their assumption of a false identity and their imposition of the usury banking system upon all Christendom. If our people would read their Bibles, they may realize that the Jews are really the Antichrist. They are the eternal enemies of God, who today are posing themselves to be gods. For this reason, under Jewish control, the world has been plunged into all sorts of corruption and perversion. Thus is the essence of Mystery Babylon. And we empower it. We empower it when we fail to pursue the will of our God. And instead, we follow the political desires of men. That alone is what destroys us because it naturally leads us into all sorts of sin. Hosea 4.10 For they shall eat and not have enough. Well, the average American today is about 100 pounds overweight. Maybe I'm exaggerating a little. 25 pounds overweight wouldn't be. They shall commit whoredom and shall not increase because they have left off to take heed to Yahweh. There is no fruit. There's no satisfaction in the lives of those who crave continually for the things of the flesh. They can never be satiated. Verse 11, 
Hoard them in wine, and new wine take away the heart. There is no longer any love for one's fellow man in this materialistic society in which we live. So it was in the paganized, materialistic society of ancient Israel. Verse 12. My people ask counsel at their stocks, and their staff declares unto them, for the spirit of whoredoms has caused them to err. And they have got a whoring from their God. As I elucidated from the pages of the classical historian Herodotus last week, we see this very practice described among the ancient Scythians, who were indeed descended from the dispersed of ancient Israel. Our people today do likewise. They look for answers in all the wrong places. So rather than read the plain words of the Bible, the Bible that their ancestors have carried for at least the last 500 years, and absorb the more, the more austere moral lessons which it contains. They would rather seek for truth in places where they will never find it. They look for truth in the false gods of the Jews, in the vain mysticism of the non-white races. If Confucius, and, and an apt play on that name is Confuse Us, if Confucius had ever done the Chinese any good, they would have developed a civil and efficient society apart from acquiring the technology and the organization of the white man at the hand of the Jew. If animism had done the African any good, they would not be living in dung huts and using urine for bug repellent. If the idols of the Hindus and the Buddhists and their vile yoga practices had done the people of the Near East any good, they would not be living in total squalor in New Delhi and Bangladesh. They are filthy pigs. Why would we give any credence to their religion? If Muhammad ever had the truth, then his followers would not be the backwards, uncivil, maniacal animals that they are today. When we go whoring after these idols, we become like the people who espouse them. According to Genesis 1, 26-28, it can be argued that we should be the zookeepers, and instead we end up in bed with the monkeys. Hosea 4.13 they sacrifice upon the tops of the mountains and burn incense upon the hills under oaks and poplars and elms. Because the shadow or the shade thereof is good. Therefore your daughters shall commit whoredom and your spouses shall commit adultery. The whoredom of our daughters the whoredom of our spouses, well, well, that's our fault. The American male, if his wife and daughters are whores, it's his fault because he's accepted the Jewish society. Elements of paganism are referred to often in the Bible. Paganism has Canaanite roots, and paganism is only evident in ancient Europe 
Because our white ancestors brought it to Europe after learning about it from the accursed races of the ancient world. Those who desire to follow paganism today seek to return to the errors of these ancient forefathers who themselves departed from the ways of their God to seek after the idols of devils and the practices of devils. Paganism references to what we can see is clearly European paganism. European paganism has its roots with the original Jews, the Canaanites of the Old Testament. It's a role-switching game, isn't it? There's no salvation in paganism. Verse 14. I will not punish your daughters when they commit whoredom, nor your spouses when they commit adultery. For themselves are separated with whores, and they sacrifice with harlots. Therefore the people that does not understand shall fall. How can unrighteous men seek to execute the law of God? How can unrighteous men seek the justice of God even against their own wives and daughters when those men are themselves found to be unrighteous? That is hypocrisy and not justice. If we seek justice, then we ourselves must be just. Listeners have sometimes insisted to me that most of our people are just, and therefore they do not deserve to suffer the fruits of unrighteousness. Well, that is our But those same people watch television and buy the products advertised on it, thereby supporting all the evils which the television programmers espouse. Those same people purchase the smut that comes out of Hollywood and Nashville and other places, entertainment centers, quite regularly. And that smut fills the heads of them and their children with all sorts of perversions. Those same people sit in the pews of their churches as their pastors extol the virtues of multiculturalism, express empathy for the so-called disadvantaged races of the earth, and encourage race mixing and the introduction of, of, of all sorts of other evils into our communities, such as all sorts of sexual deviancy. If these people and the average American, that the average European wouldn't partake of these acts on his own, and, and that's understandable. But if these people were truly righteous, they would abandon Hollywood. They would abandon Nashville. They would throw their TVs out in the streets. They would abandon all of the perversions and the garbage that they're fed into their living room through that television and through their radios. They would rebuke their pastors for evil and forsake those, those Judeo-Christianity churches. They would not allow such evil things to be preached in their communities. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. If people read their Bible for themselves, they would understand. As Paul said at the end of Romans chapter 1, it is not only those who are sinning who are liable of the judgments of the law, 
but also those who approve of the sinners who deserve to be punished along with them. It's not the homosexual alone who's liable to death, but those who approve of the homosexual. We shall be punished so long as we as a nation admit the evil among us to thrive and lend our support to it. The first is a recognition of sin. The second step is a cessation of the behavior which causes that sin and the removal of it. We as a people are not yet even at the first step. Hosea 4.15 Though thou, Israel, play the harlot, yet let not Judah offend, and come not ye unto Gilgal, neither go ye up to Bethhaven, nor swear Yahweh lives. Israel was sent out of the land, but it was to be sent out of the land for their sins. And it was by this time no way able to avoid that fate. Judah would remain in the land. Not all of the people of Judah, for many of them too were taken away with Israel. That's clear in history. But the kingdom of Judah would remain there for various reasons. Israel could not turn to Gilgal or to Bethhaven. Gilgal was the ancient seat of Samuel, the prophet. There in Gilgal was the place where Saul was made king. It was also the city of the prophets in northern Israel for many centuries. Bethhaven literally means house of vanity and represents the idolatry of Israel. Therefore, I take this passage to mean that the fate of the people was decreed. The fate of the people of Israel was sealed, and she could turn neither to her God nor to her idols for reprieve. Verse 10, I'm sorry, verse 16, I can't read. For Israel slides back as a backsliding heifer. Now Yahweh will feed them as a lamb in a large place. That's an important passage because that's, a promise of hope. The symbol of Ephraim as the ten plus tribes of the house of Israel who were deported by the Assyrians would often be called from this point on in Hosea. The symbol of the tribe of Ephraim was an ox, the horns of Joseph. The children of Israel under Jeroboam one had also turned to the worship of the golden calves. That same idolatry which they had turned to at Sinai and which they also later carried into the Mediterranean in their travels to Cyprus and to Crete early on. The golden calf cult was not removed. It was always there. It was not removed under the partial reforms of Jehu, as I discussed last week here. And it persisted right to the end of the kingdom. So the backsliding heifer allegory is appropriate in several respects. Hosea wrote, now Yahweh will feed them as a lamb in a large place. This is a prophecy that the children of Israel will be moved to a much larger land, far away from the influences of the aliens and the enemies of God. This was the first step 
and the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7.10, which, as we have seen here above, states that the children of Israel would move again to another land. Which, being spoken in the time of David, fully demonstrates that that land would not be Palestine. The first warning of the Assyrian deportations of the Israelites is found in Numbers chapter 24, where it talks about Asher taking Israel away captive. Asher is the eponymous ancestor of the Assyrians. The Assyrians are descended from Asher. So these things have been planned by God long before. Yahweh will feed them as a lamb in a large place. That was fulfilled when the Germanic tribes, the dispersion of Israel, of these Israelites of the Assyrian deportations, turned to Christianity. That's a perfect fulfillment. That Yahweh, Christ being the lamb, Yahweh will feed them as a lamb in a large place. Hosea 4.17 Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Their drink is sour. They have committed whoredom continually. Her rulers with shame do love. Give ye. The wind is bound up, bound her up in her wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. They would wallow in their adultery until Yahweh should choose to feed them in that place to which he sent them. This, of course, happened when the dispersed Israelites, who eventually became the Germanic tribes, heard the Christian gospel. For some of them, that came before the 3rd century. Among the Allens, some of the Goths, some of the Sake, they were Christians by the, third, by, by the end of the 3rd century. Some of them even by the end of the 2nd century, I believe. For others, it would not occur until the 8th or ninth centuries. It took almost a sound. It, it took a, a good seven hundred years to convert all of the Germanic tribes to Christianity. Once having returned to Yahweh their God through Christianity, being fed as a lamb in a large place, the children of Israel were indeed, for the most part, ashamed of their formerly pagan, their former pagan practices. Hosea chapter five, verse one. Hear ye this, O priests, and hearken, ye house of Israel, and give ye ear, O house of the king, for judgment is toward you, because you have been a snare on Mizpah, and a net spread upon Tabor, and the revolters are profound to make slaughter, though I have been a rebuker of them all. The political, the political and the religious leaders are those who are primarily responsible for the errors of the people. Isaiah chapter 56, verses 10 through 12. His watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yeah, they are greedy dogs which can never have enough. And they are shepherds that cannot understand. They all look to their own way, everyone to his gain, for his gain from his quarter. The watchmen are the political and religious leaders of the nation. 
Come ye say, come ye, they say, I will fetch wine and we will fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow shall be as this day and much more abundant. Our leaders usually care about their own bellies, about lining their own pockets, and not about their people. So it is then, and so it is today. Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 2, Son of man, prophecy against the shepherds of Israel, and say unto them, Thus saith Yahweh God unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves, should the shepherds not feed the flocks. Well, of course, but for at least a hundred years, we've had shepherds that care about feeding nothing but themselves. Hosea 5.3 I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hid from me. For now, O Ephraim, thou committest whoredom, and Israel is defiled. They will not frame their doings to turn unto their God, for the spirit of whoredoms is in the midst of them, and they have not known Yahweh. And the pride of Israel does testify to his face. Therefore shall Israel and Ephraim fall in their iniquity, and Judah also shall fall with them. As Paul explained in his epistles, Yahweh God cannot lose his people. The Greek word so often translated as lost in the New Testament, that word is apolumi, a word that Liddell and Scott, in their famous Greek-English lexicon, described as meaning to be destroyed or ruined or driven off from one's homeland. These definitions perfectly describe the children of Israel, of the deportations of the Assyrians. And these are the people to whom Christ was referring to at Matthew 15, 24, where he said, I am not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Ezekiel chapter 34 is all about those lost sheep and how they had wandered over every mountain, meaning that the children of Israel would indeed endure a long migration. Yet they are first mentioned in the Bible in that allegory at Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 6, where it says, My people have been lost sheep. So the lost sheep of the New Testament, they're the same lost sheep of the Old Testament. There's no change here. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have caused them to go astray. They have turned them away on the mountains, and they have gone from mountain to hill. They have forgotten their resting place. Of course, our real resting place is without God. Here we are also told that Judah shall fall along with Israel. And of course, Judah did. But the kingdom of Judah in Jerusalem lasted nearly 140 years beyond that of Israel in Samaria. Hosea 5, verse 6. They shall go with their flocks and with their herds to seek Yahweh. But they shall not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. They have dealt treacherously against Yahweh, for they have begotten strange children. Now shall a month devour them with their portions. They have begotten strange children. This corroborates the interpretation of the phrase, which I made in Hosea 4.2, where it says that blood touches blood. This corroborates that interpretation in regard to the race mixing, which had already been discussed here. 
Yet we pray that the word of God is true and that the bastard children among our ancestors were not permitted to thrive among us as we were promised. One place this promise is found is in the word of the prophet. Amos, at Amos 9.9, where it says, For lo, I will command, and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations, like as corn is sifted in a sieve. Yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. Yahweh promised that he would sift the house of Israel through those nations to which she was deported, to ancient Assyria and Persia and Media. Hosea 5, verse 8. Blow ye the cornet in Gibeah, and the trumpet in Ramah. Cry aloud at Beth-Haven, after thee, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel have I made known that which shall surely be. The princes of Judah were like them that removed the bound. Therefore I will pour out my wrath upon them like the water them that steal land and that remove the boundary markers of the land. Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked after the commandment. Therefore will I be unto Ephraim as a moth and to the house of Judah as rottenness. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then Ephraim went to the Assyrian and sent to King Jareb. Yet he could not heal you nor cure you of your wound. For I will be unto Ephraim as a lion, and as a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear, and go away, and will take away, and none shall rescue him. I will go and return unto my place, till they acknowledge their offense, and seek after my face, and their affliction they will seek me early. And so it was, not long after Hosea wrote these words, that Israel and much of Judah began to be taken away in bondage by the Assyrians, a process which lasted from about 742 B.C. unto 676 B.C. Our people have with their mouths returned to God in Christ. They haven't always done that with their hearts. Today there are many other prophecies in play besides this one, and while we recognize personal sin, we still have not recognized our national sin, which is much more serious than anything which any of us may do wrong as individuals. The white nations are on the verge of disappearing as white nations. White people in every white nation are fast dwindling as a percentage of the population. How long must it go on before we realize that we have national problems? Personal salvation is a very selfish theology. It's not found in the Bible, hardly. All of the promises of preservation and salvation are promises, in almost all instances, to the nation 
to Israel as a people, not to the Jews. I did a program several weeks ago, and I've done several programs of this tenor, that all Israel would be saved. All of us as individuals are guaranteed salvation. It's a promise of God. It's in Romans chapter 11. It's in Isaiah 45, 20. It's spoken not so explicitly in many other passages of Scripture, the promise to remove all of our sins and, and so forth, several times in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. We shouldn't be focused on the individual. If you are indeed a child of God, you will live forever. That's the promise of Scripture. God created man to live forever. However, we look for the preservation of our nation. We look for the preservation of our society. We don't have reason to be selfish if we're going to live forever. If we're assured that every white Adamic man is going to live forever, as the scripture does assure if you would only study your Bible, then we could lay all selfishness aside and know that we, that we struggle for the greater good of our white communities. We have no reason to be selfish. The personal salvation taught in Judeo churches plays on the weaknesses of the individual. The Jew loves to promote individualism. By that, he divides and conquers us. We have no need to worry about individual salvation. All of the children of Israel are guaranteed that. Knowing that, we should want to institute the laws of our God so that we could have a healthy white kingdom, so that we could have healthy white nations and communities. That's the key to Scripture. When we awaken and repent to our national sin, then we could seek salvation, national salvation, healthy white communities. That's what counts, the institution of the kingdom of heaven on earth. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I'll be back here tomorrow night. I'm not sure yet what I'm going to discuss about tomorrow night. I'll, I'll try to make it something interesting. Praise Yahweh, and I will be back here next Friday night with Hosea chapter 6. Good night.